1: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. says thank you for listening. When director Cindy Abel set out to make a film about U.S. Army Colonel Patsy Thompson and her now wife, the filmmaker was first struck by their love story. How did their relationship last over 30 years when they had to pretend they weren't a couple? We'll hear about their love story and Colonel Thompson's role in a trial years before Don't Ask, Don't Tell that led to eventual change in military policy. The director and producer of the film Surviving the Silence later this hour on City Lights. First. Valentine's Day is almost here. Love may well be the most common theme in creative self-expression, and certainly throughout music. You'll find references to love and romance in folk songs, the classical world, pop, jazz, musical theater, movie soundtracks, and even in TikTok videos. It's a touch point of inspiration for composers, some of whom have written music specifically for the objects of their affection. Dr. Scott Stewart is with us for a Valentine's Day collection of musical love letters. Scott, welcome back to City
2: Lights. Hi, thanks Lois. It's so great to be here. Happy early Valentine's Day. Love all these musical holidays that we have and we celebrate February fourteenth in all different kinds of ways. There are typical Valentine's tropes like jewelry and flowers and chocolate, and some maybe more modern millennial interpretations that might include Singles Awareness Day and self-gifted culinary delights, which I'm all about.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, you had me at chocolate back there.
2: <laughs> well, I was actually going to say if you had a TikTok channel, I would follow you. You know, I'm not really good at dancing, but I certainly would enjoy if you <laughs> had one. But however, and with whomever you celebrate Valentine's Day, we know that music is often in the mix. And you know, Lois, we often take a look at music and maybe the overall expressive power of the piece that we're listening to. But we also kind of get down and dirty into the nuts and bolts, the inner workings of melody and harmony and rhythm and the other pieces, parts that make up music And I think it's also worth taking a look at the origin of the music or why it was composed in the first place. There's a long history of composers dedicating their music to employers or patrons or mentors, but they've also, sometimes in sneaky coded ways, sent romantic messages through their music. And today is a look at some of those musical love letters from composers to their own loves.
1: Uh, Scott, there are a handful of classical romantic pieces that have crept into popular cultural consciousness. And by romantic, I mean, mostly in the Valentine sense, although there is also an overlap with the romantic style of the 19th century, which celebrated deep emotion, tender intimacy, and sweeping expressions of love.
2: Oh yes, and there are of course, some awesome pieces of music that unfortunately just get overplayed. They become a little cliched around Valentine's Day and don't get me started on wedding music, (laughs) but there's some wonderful music. Uh, Some of it is sweet and intimate like the Liebestrom by Franz Liszt. Other music, like the Romeo and Juliet Fantasy Overture by Tchaikovsky, dripping with Romantic era longing. And still other pieces like Rachmaninoff's Variations on a Theme by Paganini which overwhelm you with passion and orchestral swells. As I said, these are fine pieces in their own right. They just get a little overdone around this time of year.
1: (laughs) Scott, it would be impossible to have a discussion about love without bringing composer Richard Wagner into the conversation. When we think of Wagner, we think of larger-than-life and longer-than-life operas, (laughs) especially during the ring cycle, clocking in at 15 hours, thank you. He also wrote some small-scale works, including The Siegfried Idol, which I think of as music's loveliest birthday present. was written as a birthday gift to his wife Cosima.
2: Yes, and Richard Wagner, who would never have won the Mr. Congeniality Award, <laughs> did in this case stage a highly romantic setting for the premiere on Christmas morning in 1870. He assembled a 13-member orchestra to sneak into the Wagner family country villa in Switzerland and line up the stairs and he cracked the door open and so Cosima awoke to the strains of Siegfried Idol. You have to imagine having some coffee and some strudel brought to your bedroom and hearing these sounds wafting from the grand staircase, better than any alarm clock and the best birthday present ever. In this concert version of Siegfried Idol, which has added wind instruments, we hear this sumptuous climax in a sort of love march toward the end.
1: I know it seems an absurd jump, but Larry David wrote a fabulous episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm that ends with a performance of the Siegfried Idol for his wife, for his on-screen wife, played by Cheryl Hines. And I urge you to check it out.
2: He is the best. That was Herbert von Karhein, by the way, leading the Berlin Philharmonic in music of Richard Wagner, the Siegfried idol. we to this side of Wagner, which is both intimate and rapturous, all in the space of this one sweet love note to his wife, Cosima. This was supposed to be a private piece forever, but in true Wagnerian fashion, he needed some money. And so he published the piece.
1: Just before production of the Four Opera Ring Cycle, Richard Wagner composed Tristan and Isolde in 1865, a tale of two star-crossed lovers. Opera lovers and music historians cite this work as a major turning point that resulted in the abandonment of traditional harmony as we know it and like it. That's and okay. in addition to its radical harmonies and departure from all that we knew about tonality, Wagner managed to come up with an opera in which the protagonist dies of love. People don't die of love much anymore.
2: (laughs) It was very 19th century.
1: Yeah.
2: And Wagner was getting pretty edgy at this point anyway, in terms of his use of harmony compared to the earlier composers of the Romantic era, think late Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann. But Tristan and Isolde really pushed the limits of what we call chromaticism or the use of half steps. Think of playing a piano and playing both white and black keys. There's even a chord that came out of this opera that we call the Tristan chord. So in the third and final act of the opera, not unlike the ending of Romeo and Juliet, Tristan, as you say, has died of love. It's an (laughs) opera after all. And Isolde is singing over his dead body, the tune Liebestod, which is German for love, death. Really only the Germans could combine those two terms into one word. It is in this music that the lovers, even though they die, find eternal life and love.
1: The juicy backstory to all of this noble artistic work is that Wagner had a warrant for his arrest for participating in revolutionary activities in Dresden, Germany. So he left his first wife, Minna, and fled to Switzerland where he met a wealthy patron who supported him for several years and Wagner showed his appreciation by having an affair with that patron's (laughs) wife, Matilda. Matilda had written poetry to which Wagner had set music that later became sketches for parts of Tristan and Isolde.
2: And it's unusual enough that Wagner, who was very egotistical, and usually only wrote his own poetry, would set someone else's poetry. So that might give you some insight into how he felt about this woman. But there's so much drama swirling around here. And of course we know that Wagner once again had to get out of Dodge and move to Venice, leaving both Minna and Matilda behind. He would later take up with Cosima Liszt, the daughter of Franz Liszt and the ex-wife of conductor Hans von Bulow, his friend. The Kardashians have nothing on the Wagner's.
1: (laughs) He had a very unusual way of thanking his greatest (laughs) patrons and friends. And yet, Liszt and Hans von Bülow remained supportive of him. He did. Possibly the most famous and most complicated love triangle in composer history, is that among Robert and Clara Schumann and Robert's young protege Johannes Brahms.
2: Robert Schumann is remembered for writing many Lieder or art songs for voice and piano. On the eve of their wedding, Robert presented Clara with a set of 26 of these in a fancily bound collection that was decorated with green myrtles or Myrthen, the German symbol of marriage. And among them is the lotus bluma, the lotus flower. This is poetry by Heinrich Heine. It tells of the lotus flower that only comes to life at night.
1: Barbara Barney with pianist Vladimir Ashkenazi in Schumann's Lotus Flower from his song cycle
2: Myrtle's,
1: a loving wedding present for his bride-to-be Clara.
2: And enter the love triangle, a 20-year-old Johannes Brahms showed up at the Schumann's house in 1853. He had a letter of recommendation, a few manuscripts and shared them with Robert and Clara. Robert was so impressed that he invited Brahms to live with them. So he became a house guest for several months. And Robert Schumann really became a mentor to Brahms who at that point was an up and coming composer. But it was only four months later That Robert, who had been afflicted by hallucinations and several, at the time, untreatable mental illnesses, attempted suicide by throwing himself into the Rhine River. They got him out, but he was committed to a private psychiatric institution, and tragically, he died there only two years later in 1856.
1: And the snake pit had nothing on this mid 19th century psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. It's so tragic. And to think today he could have been treated with medication. Oh, it's a tragic story. And in the meantime, Brahms had fallen in love with Clara Schumann who was now thrown into a performing career just to support her seven children. She in turn became very fond of Brahms.
2: And Clara and Brahms stayed close for the rest of their lives and even spoke of marriage but eventually decided against it. It's definitely a tangled web and we have many tender letters exchanged between the two of them but Really nothing so tender as the pieces that Brahms composed at the end of his life, all dedicated to Clara. The intermezzo in A major is brimming with love and respect and devotion to Clara Schumann.
1: Glenn Gould playing the intermezzo in A from the opus 118 piano pieces by Johannes Brahms, all dedicated to pianist and composer Clara Schumann. WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart, sharing his favorite love music. We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to WABE Atlanta. on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. Ahead of Valentine's Day, we're speaking about love-themed music. Gustav Mahler wrote his symphony number no. five in 1901 and 02. He was recuperating from a near fatal hemorrhage and recently resigned as director of the Vienna Philharmonic, leaving behind a lot of negativity from musicians as well as critics. Around that time, he met his future wife, Alma Maria Schindler, and fell. Deeply
2: in love. And Mahler, who was really one of the heroes of the romantics, because he was not one to separate his private life from his music. It all kind of got wrapped up together. So he dove into this symphony in response to a lot of his life's trials at this time. The symphony number no. five opens with the famous trumpet call and then funeral march. And then takes the listener on an hour-long emotional roller coaster the fourth movement the adagietto is often played just by itself without the symphony and it's scored for just the strings and harp it's one of Mahler's most frequently performed works and is a love letter without words from Mahler to his wife Alma Schindler from Symphony Number no. Five by Gustav Mahler. As it turns out, Alma Mahler was really good at getting married. <laughs> and she was even better at having affairs. May, so, may I
1: interrupt, Scott? Yes, of course. She was not only good at getting married, she married three of the most influential creatives
2: of she, her time. I will give her credit for having a high bar. Like she found <laughs> really good people.
1: First Gustav Mahler. And then the architect and founder of the Bauhaus School, Walter Gugorpius, and the poet and writer, Franz Werfel, all the while having an affair with the artist, with the painter, Oskar (laughs) Kokosch.
2: Exactly. So while she was kind of keeping very busy, Mahler was composing, and as it has turned out, this love letter from Mahler to his wife, uh, for better or for worse, has become associated more with death than with romance. Uh, Famously, Leonard Bernstein performed the Adagietto at the funeral mass for Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 at St. Patrick's. And there are many recordings of this movement that are separate from the symphony and maybe one of the most famous examples of wide variation in timings. Uh, Some of them, most of them, I would say clock in around seven minutes, but we have several examples that go up to 15 minutes, extremely slow and uh, drug out.
1: Hmm. Lest we think the Germans had all the fun, we have evidence of musical love letters from all over the globe, this time from the Czech Republic. Leoš Tsiánáček is in the family tree of Czech composers, which include Antonín Vorsák and Beatriz Smetana. He wrote a number of successful operas, the often played Sinfonietta, and a number of chamber works. Among these are two string quartets, the second of which is subtitled Intimate Letters.
2: Janáček was married, but had this fictionalized love affair, it never happened, with a woman named Camilla Staslova. She was a married woman who was 37 years younger than him, and of course, this is at the very end of Janicek's life he sent over 700 love letters to her from the time he was 63 until his death 11 years later. So the second string quartet is his musical love letter to her, dating from 1928. It actually premiered after he died. The second string quartet, which is basically his love letter to her, dates from 1928. And the viola is prominently featured throughout this work. Perhaps this is a direct reference to Camilla... Or a kind of love duet between the two of them, even though she really didn't want to have much to do with him. <laughs> In any case, the music reveals Janáček's deep feelings for her. We hear a very tender opening of the second movement, Adagio.
1: one of the power couples of classical music was the 39-year romance between English composer Benjamin Britten and the great tenor Peter Pierce. They never spoke publicly about their sexuality or their relationship as their lives and careers spanned. A time when homosexuality was outlawed in Britain, and this was the 20th century. Nonetheless, close friends and a large collection of letters exchanged reveal a joyful and ardent love between the two of them.
2: Benjamin Britten, the composer, actually accompanied singer Peter Pears at recitals in the late 1930s, and Britten fashioned many of his most famous operatic tenor roles for Peter Pierce, including Peter Grimes and Peter Quint and Captain Vere, Their musical partnership was the beginning of, and really the cover for, their romantic relationship. Britton composed his Canticle Number no. 1 in 1947. This featured a text from the 17th century poet, Francis Quarles. In the closing, we hear a heartfelt declaration of love, which some could interpret religiously, but you could also interpret personally. It reads, he gives me wealth, I give him all my vows, I give him songs, he gives me length of days. With wreaths of grace he crowns my longing brows, and I his temples with a crown of praise, with he accepts an everlasting sign that I, my best beloveds, am that he is mine.
1: Tenor Philip Langridge and pianist Stuart Bedford performing Benjamin Britten's "My Beloved Is Mine" from the Canticle Number no. One. We remember English composer Edward Elgar for his Enigma Variations, the Cello Concerto, and his pomp and circumstance marches. One of Elgar's most beloved miniatures is a sweet piece he called Salud d'amour, or Love's Greeting.
2: I think his publishers wanted it to be in French because they thought it would sell more. In, In 1888, one of Elgar's students named Alice Roberts handed him a poem about love. And Elgar responded by writing the Salud d'Amour and accompanied it with a marriage proposal, which she accepted. Her parents disinherited her immediately for marrying the composer, and Elgar only earned two guineas when he submitted the piece for publication. Still a very happy ending for the loving couple and a beautiful love note and proposal. Salud Amor, Loves Greeting by Edward Elgar. The first of the Enigma Variations by Elgar, which is in the score denoted as C-A-E. Caroline Alice Cooper is also dedicated to Alice, the result of a four-note musical fragment that apparently Elgar whistled while coming home one day. On this Valentine's Day, we remember that some of our beloved composers in the Western tradition and indeed all traditions have personal lives and love lives in addition to their musical careers. We send our own love's greeting to all along with these measures of affection. Happy Valentine's Day.
1: And happy Valentine's Day to you, my friend. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor, film music commentator, and host of Strike Up the Band. He's conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony, and is on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools. This is City Lights on W-A-B-E. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. One would think that those who serve their country with loyalty and valor would be celebrated, but that has not been true in the U.S. military until very recently. The documentary, Surviving the Silence reveals struggles, discrimination, and triumph over adversity. Last September, I spoke with director Cindy L. Abel and producer Mark Smolowitz via Zoom about this moving film and how love conquered all. First, I asked Cindy how she discovered the story of Colonel Patsy Thompson.
3: When I first met Colonel Patsy Thompson and her now wife, Barbara Brass, I was first drawn by their love story. How does a relationship last over three decades when they've had to pretend that, in fact, they weren't actually a couple? And they didn't have the benefit, of course, of cell phones and texting and email like we do now. And so when Colonel Thompson would be away at the Pentagon, where she served for three years as the chief nurse of the Army National Guard, they would send letters, but they also had to speak in code when they'd have the opportunity to speak on the telephone. So I was first drawn in by their love story. And as I learned the connection to LGBTQ history, history that would eventually help dismantle the anti-gay and lesbian policy of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I thought, wow, how could a storyteller resist such a story, a love story that reveals unknown history? I knew that I had to make this movie.
1: Mm. Can you give our listeners a synopsis of who the film follows?
3: The film follows two women in love who helped change the course of military history. Colonel Patsy Thompson had been in the military for nearly 35 years at this point when she was tasked with expelling a lesbian, an army hero, Colonel Margaret Kamelmeyer from the army for having admitted that she was a lesbian. But the way in which closeted Colonel Thompson did it led to Colonel Kammermeyer's reinstatement eventually via federal court.
1: Yeah, but boy, what they had to go through before that. Um, I must say the part of the film when Colonel Thompson reveals what she had to tell Colonel Kammermeyer is gut-wrenching. What was the policy on LGBTQ people in the military before Don't Ask, Don't Tell?
3: The official policy was that homosexuality is incompatible with military service. Bisexual folks and transgender folks weren't even in the picture. They weren't even mentioned. So gay men and lesbians were told, you cannot be homosexual and serve in the military.
1: Before this documentary, I hadn't really thought about how partners of gay people in the military were impacted by this secrecy that was required if they wanted to maintain their jobs. Colonel Pat Thompson's wife, Barbara Brass, really had to keep a low profile. Whether at banquets, phone conversations, you bring out that this was before cell phones, and living together you know, having to live this facade as friends or or sisters with Colonel Thompson's previous partner, why was it essential for her to keep her? sexual identity under wraps, that is, for Barbara Brass, even though she wasn't in the military.
3: Barbara Brass knew that any time that she might be outed, if you will, as a lesbian, it would have an impact on her her then partner, Colonel Thompson. And so if Colonel Thompson was living with a lesbian, even if somehow they'd been able to prove to some degree that they weren't actually partners, she would have been automatically discharged. You know, there were witch hunts, and Colonel Thompson talks in our film, Surviving the Silence, about having friends who were discharged, just purely under suspicion of having been lesbians. So Barbara Brass was willing to sacrifice her own personal career choices, her desire to be out. You know, let's remember that when they were first getting, becoming a couple, there was a lot going on with regard to LGBTQ rights. You know, that was shortly after Stonewall. People were starting to talk about this and as visibility increased, so did discrimination, so did hate crimes. So Barbara knew that in addition to protecting Patsy's career, they also had to pay attention at home. And so they would when asked, they would choose to lie in order to protect their relationship as well as to protect Pats' career and also to have an element of safety when they were in their own home.
1: Yeah, there's another poignant moment in the film when a neighbor comes over to ask what they really are. Would you talk about that?
3: Sure, they were out in the front, and by this time, Patsy and Barbara had been renovating the home, things like that, and making it more comfortable, and really doing their own version of a HGTV show, if you will. And a neighbor came over and said, What is the relationship between you two women? And Patsy said, Oh, we're sisters. And this is where her strength as a kind Southern lady was really put to the test because she was able to have the strength to look this man in the eye and at the same time to give him the answer that she knew he was looking for in order to preserve their own relationship, their own secrecy that required them to be in the closet. And so she simply said, we're sisters. And this neighbor said, I knew it. That's what I told them. I knew you were sisters. And that right there revealed one of their worst fears is that people were talking, people were speculating, people were wondering about their relationship, which, of course, would put them in jeopardy. And the neighbor is relieved to hear that as, as if anyone
1: would ever imagine asking a hetero couple, what are you two? It's so difficult to comprehend how recent this discrimination was. Colonel Thompson played a big role in the discharge of Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer. How did Thompson's decision on the board result in Colonel Kamameyer being reinstated later on?
3: When Colonel Thompson was faced with the, the challenge, the, the horrible challenge of having to discharge Colonel Margareta Camameyer, you know, there were three things that she could have done. One, she could have just simply refused. Another thing she but she knew that someone then would be put in her place and that Colonel Kammermeier would, of course, be expelled because that's what the rules and regulations said. The other thing she could have done was to do the bare minimum and just quickly manage this process it and keep it moving, which is what the army wanted her to do. But at at risk to herself, she kept holding the army at bay and saying, hold on, we're working on it as quickly as we can. And she allowed Colonel Campbell legal team to get all the paperwork together, to get all the testimonies they needed, to get all the witnesses they needed, and then to allow that to be admitted into this military board and have it be heard in hopes that maybe someday all of this evidence of what an amazing... Army hero, Colonel Kammelmeyer, was in hopes that this evidence would someday cause her to be reinstated. She didn't know that then it would be taken to federal court and that this would be the turning point by listening to all of this testimony. She just knew she had to do everything she could, even though it put her at higher scrutiny because she was telling the Army to slow down and to hold
0: off.
1: Mark, were you aware of this story before? For the film?
0: Well, you know, I was not aware of the story of Patsy and Barb, but I was, of course, aware of Greta Kammermeier, right? So, you know, Greta Kammermeier is such an important person in kind of what, you know, I see as recent LGBTQ history. You know, her story unfolded in the 90s. And, you know, I was in my 20s in the 1990s. And that was a very defining decade for me with respect to all LGBTQ issues. And, you know, was. You know, highly aware of her important role in sort of the mainstreaming of our communities, um, and certainly in Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I had a personal memory of being at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, where I live, um, in the mid-90s, when the um, the original television movie, uh, Serving in Silence, premiered there. And that was a film that was based on Kammermeyer's memoir of the same name. And it was executive produced by Barbara Streisand, and it starred Glenn Close as Camilla. And um, my own sort of you know personal tie in here is that um, Barb and Pat were actually in that audience in the mid '90s, as was I. And every time I think about that, how you know. So many years ago we were in the same room watching a film about that was indirectly about their story you know and it's referred to in in one of the conversations um towards the end of the movie in and that's you know that's what i think is so powerful here is that you know you have these women come together ultimately to sort of talk to each other about their role in this um little known history and And when I was approached by Cindy, I mean, going back to 2014, we have been working on this together for six years. You know, I'm in the Bay Area, so I live relatively close to Barb and Pat, so it wasn't too long that I was able to actually meet these women in person, spend meaningful time with them and get to know them, and fell in love with them like everyone does.
1: Producer Mark Smolowitz and director Cindy L. Abel, Surviving the Silence will be available to stream virtually March 12th through 14th as part of this year's Sacramento Jewish Film Festival. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, Monday at 11 a.m., Director Adam Copeland helps celebrate President's Day with a new episode in our series, Culture Crash. Our theme music is the first time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org citylights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.